Football on the Sports Social Podcast Network is brought to you by BetVictor in play betting. Watch the action, predict the action, and make your best bet with the latest odds on over 1,000 daily events. 18 plus, begambleaware.org. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Hi, my name is Yoma, and I play football for Chelsea FC and for the Swedish national team. And you are listening to the Blue Day podcast. You've experienced so many sort of different ups and down stories of Chelsea, especially with their coaches, and they've had many coaches throughout the years. Was there a, a appointment that shocked you where Chelsea appointed somebody and why? Plus, was there a, a second Chelsea did that perhaps made you a bit pissed off, a bit sad about the... Uh, managerial most sackings did because I just got on with most of the managers um, I, I really did like a lot of them uh, and they were all working under pressure and I felt that a lot I, I, I insist on bringing out one appointment um, it didn't surprise me because we all knew it was going to happen but it really annoys me that the first press conference of Jose Mourinho is remembered for only one quote. And it was a brilliant quote. I am not of a bottle, I am a special one. It was a brilliant quote. But if you sat in that press conference like I did, there was an even more brilliant quote for Chelsea fans. Not for the worldwide media, not for for social media, but there was an even more brilliant comment. Now, you've got to remember that we'd just gone through four years of Claudio, Claudio Ranieri, saying, you can't make us favourites, we're not good enough, we're not going to do this. And we went into every competition in every season, always feeling as though we weren't taking it quite as seriously as we wanted to. And that was the way he was preparing us for our ultimate failure. And of course, Claudio built a fantastic foundation for Jose. Um, but he never won anything himself, and, and, and um, that was always a, a, a drawback for him. Mourinho came in, and he said in this uh, press conference, when I leave here, I want to have changed the identity of Chelsea Football Club, and I want the identity to be winners. 2004, he said that. Now look, shall we list what we won before 2004 and since 2004? Uh, those three years, three and a bit years that he was manager of the club, he's, I don't think he's the same person now as he was then. 
I agree with, with it. Him. I'm one of the ones who fell out with him. I still get on with him when I see him. I still love him despite everything. Was the uh, fallout over players, or was it a case of something was perhaps said? Oh, interviews. But but those three years, he changed our club like nobody else has changed our club in those three years. And the, the, what he what he did and what he brought to it, and 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 the the outlook on it. And he was in those three years, he was invincible. He was unbelievable. Um, and and we are winners, and we still are. Most of that occurred. Oh, because... I've, uh, sorry, I've got no, to answer no, no, your question. I've, absolutely, I've got to go. your question in one more way because I kind of feel as though you might have been getting at something. Uh, and that's Rafa, Rafa Benitez. Um, I, I got into a lot of trouble over Rafa uh, because. Um, uh, I came out on the pitch and I introduced him and he got booed. Um, and um, I remember that vividly. I, I, I had a policy uh, on the pitch. Uh, um, again, it, perhaps a little different from the policy now. But, but for me, the stars um, of, of uh, what I was doing was the fans because obviously the players weren't on the pitch when I was doing my stuff. The stars were the fans and everything, it was to, it, it, everything, you know, it, it, when you're on the pitch, you can't hold a conversation with 40,000 people. Uh, you can't, I, I always refuse to do interviews, but that's why I want to walk them around. You just take, you know, the, the relationship is between whoever you've got out there and the fans. And that's why I always refuse to um, call the team to, to, name the team after the players had come out because the relationship was supposed to be between the fans and the players there, not between the flipping pitch presenter and mm. the fans. So, so um, um, when I, I never talked over singing and chanting, unless it was by the opposition, I had a better line of them, which was always, um, but, um, but so when the fans booed Rafa, I, I just let it go until it stopped. But in fact, that was that was the night that we were remembering Dave Sexton, who had just died. So uh, we were able to change the mood, uh, uh, and so it happened. But after his tenure, um, and Jose came back for his second time around, we went for right. Jose to come out on the pitch before the first game of the season. He wasn't coming because he was playing Hull, and he wanted to wait for Steve Bruce and walk out with him. And uh, I was just standing there, and... Uh, I looked round and I suddenly realised that um, my face was on the big screen and that the camera was on me. So I just looked into the camera and I, you know, I never planned what I was saying. It, it, was, it was all from here, from my heart. Uh, and I just looked in the camera and I said, I'm rather more looking forward to introducing this manager than I was the last one. And I was just thinking of the booing, really. It wasn't a personal dig at rapper. Oh, my God. Uh, there was massive cheering and I did I get into trouble for <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean Rafa Rafa got us to third in the table he uh, he won us the Europa League but Brenner's last minute goal against Benfica he uh, yeah but yeah. he um, he was. Uh... He did divide opinion. I think what probably didn't help him was the f- 
the fact that he replaced Di Matteo, he yeah, he replaced. Yeah. Didn't apologise for it or didn't explain it beyond anything. Uh, but I, I think, um, I think, uh, um, let me put it this way. The Liverpool fans adore him. You go and ask the Liverpool staff at that, of that era whether they adore him. Interesting. I have nothing more to say. No, I think, well, I think we should move on. Um, incredibly, it's nearly coming up to 20 years, July 2003, in fact, a certain Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea from Ken Bates. I want to get your opinion on the purchase of Chelsea. Do you remember where you was when you first heard the news? And looking back now, how significant was that win the previous season against Liverpool, the last day, was to the purchase of Chelsea? Uh, it was essential. It was absolutely essential. Um, I, I, I am not at all sure Roman would have Roman would have bought us if it, if it hadn't been for that. So it was it, it was absolutely essential. Um, uh, funnily enough, those four or five days when the uh, search into due diligence was going on uh, by his people, I was I was in the club. I, I can't remember why, but I was going into the club every day at that stage. And I knew there was something going on, but I didn't have a clue what. Uh, and a couple of other people who I was friends with, we all knew there was something going on, but none of us had any idea what it was. Um, but it, it, it was clear there was something. And, and I was driving, I live in Kingston, and I was driving home from the ground. I was going around the Wandsworth one-way system. Uh, and my mobile rang. And it was Trevor Birch, who was... Uh, chief executive and he said where are you so I told him he said is it going to be quicker for you to get home and work or come back and work I said halfway I'll go home and he said I want as soon as possible don't ask why and don't tell anyone you're doing it but I think I can tell you 20 years old Um, (laughs) I want an explanation of why we should keep Gianfranco Zola for a potential new owner. And I went home and I hammered out as quickly as I could this explanation of why we should keep Gianfranco. And one of the reasons that I put them there, by the way, was the success of Rude or Glenn, but more Rude and Luca, um, player managers who had gone from being just player to player managers and that if things didn't work out on the managerial front not only could Gianfranco be a player but he might be someone that would be uh, um, might be someone who would be considered for player manager Um, and I sent this off uh, and that was presented I know to the staff or to the Romance people as a reason for keeping um, for keeping Gianfranco. Uh, Gianfranco was contacted and told them that he'd already signed for Cagliari uh, and that he couldn't go back on his word. I believe, I truly believe, that Roman tried to buy Cagliari that summer. I did hear there was rumours 
in yeah, 2003. No, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That and, Roman and, um, did try to do that. But it didn't happen. And, and in the end, it was probably the right time for him to leave as well. He had two wonderful years at Cannering, and he, he ended at age 39, and he, he was offered a contract until he was 14, he turned it down. But but um, he, he uh, it was probably the right time. So <clears throat> when the announcement was finally made, you know, I don't even remember the final announcement where I was or what happened, because it was... Oh, so that's what's been going on, uh, and uh, uh, and um, yeah, it was uh, it was amazing. And then we were just desperately trying to get Roman on Chelsea TV for the next uh, month and failing uh, totally. Was you shocked that Ken Bates, who was you know, part of the the fabric at Chelsea for so long, obviously with financial burden perhaps being uh, an influence? the fact that he actually left the club for so many years being there. And now all of a sudden Romans come in from Russia, bought the club. And then we go on a, a huge spending spree that summer of 03. Well, Ken, Ken didn't leave. He, he became the, he retained the chair. Cause he, 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 he stayed for a bit longer, didn't he? And he went the following, I think March. Um, right. And uh, no, I was aware of all the breakdowns that were going on and everything that was going on behind the scenes. And in fact, uh, the night that he announced he, he was leaving uh, was at a dinner that I hosted. So I was I was party to everything that was going on, and uh, and the Roman side of the campaign of of the project knew that it was going to happen, and and uh, uh, were there and uh, having conversations with me as well. And it was all very uncomfortable, I've got to say, but. Mm. Um, but it was um, it was it was just Chelsea Football Club at the time. It, it was it was painful. Uh, it was very painful for him. But this was the new broom, and it, it, he didn't fit. Hmm. Talk about Chelsea. Sort of fast forward. We mentioned that it's nearly been twenty years since Roman bought the club. It's nearly ten years. Ten years next year that Chelsea won their first European Cup. As you say, Munich. 2012 against Bayern just looking back on that season in particular how much of a crazy season was that and yeah we talk about later on last season with two called replacing Lampard and then end up winning the Champions League again how bonkers season was that for 2011-2012 bearing in mind Ancelotti left Vilas Boas came in he fell out with players he left, Di Matteo came in, results in the league, in my opinion, were pretty crap. I think we finished um, sixth Six. or seventh. Sixth. Sixth. We were nearly out of the Champions League after losing to Bayern, uh, Bayer Leverkusen, which, which I went to. And we had to beat Valencia in the final game in match day six to actually qualify at the group. What are your memories of we, that season? Time, uh, Bayern Leverkusen were at Genk, who didn't lose at home in the group stage. And uh, I always thought we were favourites to win the group, even going into that last day. Now, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Uh, the managers had lost control of the transfer um, uh, transfers at the club completely. And it was now run separately, which is how modern football clubs or how football clubs are run currently in the main. Um, and um, I feel that we had a series of disasters in the transfer market. 
uh, from when we won the double going on. Uh, and, and one of them, I'm afraid, um, loving, was Fernando Torres. Mm. And uh, he came in and it just didn't happen. And in 2011, well, let's not forget that what actually happened was that uh, we went out of the Champions League to uh, Manchester United in the quarterfinals. That's right, and under Ancelotti. After that, after that, Carlo Ancelotti started leaving Fernando out of the team because he couldn't score a goal and bringing Didier back. Uh, Didier now 33 years old. Uh, and we suddenly started winning. And we went up to Old Trafford two games from the end of the season. If we won, we went level top with them. That's uh, right. With two games to go. We were, we were seriously in the title race. Uh, um, but uh, there were a lot of reasons why Carlo went, but leaving Fernando Torres out of the side was maybe one of the main ones. So what happened with Andre Villas-Boas was he came in, I think Didier was injured at the beginning of the season, Fernando Torres played, uh, and we were poor. We were just poor. Um, it was a bit like Timo couldn't score a goal when we were just poor. Um, and uh, it's interesting that you went to the Leverkusen away because that was the game where he suddenly threw Didier in. And Didier was hopeless. He hadn't trained properly, couldn't run. He was an old man. He was awful. But, but after about half an hour, he found some rhythm. And for about 20 minutes, he was the best player on the pitch. And he scored the opening goal. He did, yes. And it was an absolute flipping worldie. But then we lost 3-1. But he played the next game and he slowly got his fitness back. And Valencia came down for that. That that was match day five, Leverkusen. Valencia Mm. came down match day six. And he tore them to shreds. He absolutely tore them to shreds. And he scored two goals. We won 3-1. And by the way, the first goal was with his left foot. Poor Nando couldn't hit the ball with his left foot. And, and <laughs> we were on our way. Um, but things started going wrong. Uh, Didier actually went away, I think, to the African Cup of Nations, if I'm not mistaken, and came back. I was put straight back in the team by Andre. He left out Fernando Torres. He went. That was as much... It, Dropping out of the top four was one thing, but leaving out for Nando was another thing. He went. So Robbie came in, and Robbie played it very cleverly, and he ducked and dived between the two. Now, uh, we all know that Robbie had become a close friend of Ken Bates uh, at the end of his career because Ken couldn't afford to pay him the insurance that he was owed um, uh, because the club was in such a bad way financially and gave him shares in Chelsea instead which turned into something pretty damn profitable when Roman bought the club I'm sure uh, uh, Robbie did okay so they they had remained friends because they found a way of sorting out um, uh, the financial issues between them uh, constructively Um, so I don't think Robbie was ever an easy choice for Roman Uh, and and Roman told him, your job is to come in the top four when he took over from Andre. But Robbie only had a one-year contract and he wasn't really talked to again after that. Um, So he he was under the impression that whatever he did, he wasn't going to get another contract. So with a 
a couple of months to go to the end of the season, he decided to hell with the top four. I'm going to improve my CV. I'm going for the cup and the Champions League. Now, I think people aren't aware of what Didier's last five starts were in a Chelsea shirt. Now, I know he came back and had other starts after that, but to all intents and purposes, he left in 2012 after the yeah. Champions League final. And I don't think people are aware of what his last five starts were. But his last five starts were the FA Cup semi-final against Tottenham, where he scored that blistering opener with his left foot going around William Gallas in the top corner, 20 yards. Carlo Cotacini, left foot again, world-class player. His next start was Champions League semi-final home leg Barcelona, where he scored the only goal of the game with his left foot from That's a right. cross that was going just behind him. His next start was the Champions League semi-final second leg away to Barcelona, where he essentially played left back for most of the game yes. and was unbelievably brilliant. His next start was the FA Cup final, where he scored because he's Didier Drogba. And his final start was the Champions League final, where he scored because he's Didier Drogba. He did not start a league game in the last six weeks of the season. Fernando Torres started all the league games, which kept Robbie in his job. And we came six, but we won the FA Cup and we won the Champions League. And it was only after we'd won the Champions League that Robbie got a new contract. Um, if it was pure luck, therefore, in this brilliant period of ownership by Roman, and it has been an absolutely brilliant period, but it was pure luck that we went and won the Champions League and, and, and reached his number one holy grail, because if he hadn't separated himself from Robbie, Robbie, I don't think, would have made that decision that he was going to go after his CV. Uh, and it was it was a little bit of luck of circumstances. And it's quite ironic that Roman, who I do think is the best, as good an owner, I'm not going to say the best, as good an owner as there is of a football club out there, it, it, it is ironic that the other holy grail that was achieved of making us one of the most popular clubs in the world, was done after the transfer ban when we brought in all the youngsters and suddenly everybody liked Chelsea because we were playing a load of homegrown kids yeah. and we had an old legend as our manager and it yeah. suddenly looked like a family and that made us popular. People wanted to see Rhys James and Fukaya Tabori and Andreas Christensen and Mason Mount and Tammy Abraham and Callum Hudson. They wanted to see all those players in the team. It made us a family and, and I do think that's been our most popular period in the Roman era. Hmm. For years, obviously talking about yourself earlier, when you used to present somebody, an ex-player on the pitch at half-time, whether win, lose or draw, whether it was sunshine, rain or hail, you used to announce them, you used to bring them round the pitch. I, I, I remember sort of seeing them you know, throughout the years, you know, different players through the decades. How fun was this for you to do? And it, it look, again, looking back now and comparing it to now, do you feel that the club is missing something by not doing that again? Or do you feel that the club have just sort of looked at that and gone, that was then, this is now? I don't know. I, I mean, you know, uh, 
before I was finally ditched off the pitch, they they created a match day experience committee. I mean, come on. Uh, and I remember going to a meeting and being told this is about how making sure that the fans go home. It doesn't look, the result doesn't influence how much they've enjoyed themselves when the fans are going home. And I use the F off phrase then of, I mean, come on. Uh, um, it, it's, um, it's, uh, it was something that I did by chance. Uh, we were making a presentation to Frank LeBerth and I got Steve Clark to make it. I think he was a youth team coach at the time. I think it was uh, for 200 games. And uh, Clarky came out. He was youth team coach, yeah. And he, he'd, of course, been a central defensive partner uh, in 97 when we won the FA Cup. Uh, and Frank LeBerth came out, and the crowd was singing his name. And he went off and did a walkabout on his own. And Clarky was absolutely fuming at me and said, I'm never coming out with you again. Um, and um, and uh, by the way, can we just say that the reason Steve Clark wasn't the worst dressed manager at the Euros was Luis Enrique, but we won't go any further. <laughs> but um, but uh, um, uh, uh, he did this walk around and it just occurred to me then and there, this is a relationship between the player who the fans loved, and, and it was almost, I'll tell you what it was, it was, it was brilliant because it was him going around and everyone saying, hi, how are you? That's what it was. And my whole t- aim of going around was simply, hi, how are you? And, and people seeing them up at close quarters again. And all the players that used to say, oh, I'm not into that. I don't want to go around being the absolute, this is who I am. I said, you're not going around saying this is who, who I am. You're going around saying, hi, how are you? Thanks for supporting me all those years. How are you? Lovely to see you. That's what it is. And, and that's, that's how I treated it. And that's how I think most people who did it treated it. Uh, and and uh, it was... It, it, it was could be electric, obviously. It's, it wasn't always, but it could be. Hmm. I want to talk about your departure from the club now. It was in July of 2018 that it was announced through social media. And again, this was completely out of the blue. By me, <laughs> not by the club. Yes, yeah, I, yes you was the one who they actually... It, it was know. your first tweet. It was your tweet that um, sort of sprung the surprise that after 32 years service you would no longer be working for Chelsea did they give you any reasonings after the fact or could you perhaps shed some light on what transpired well what conversations were there and you know why did you leave on such controversial terms uh well tv just stopped using me it, 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 it there was no um there was no decision made. They just stopped using me because I was always freelance anyway. And they claimed afterwards they didn't even know they'd stop using me, which you make of it what you will. And I had a meeting with them in which they said, uh, give, us, uh, give us a suggestion of how you can work with old boys and we'll consider it. Uh, and uh, the last two legends that I did, which were... Ricardo Cavalier, which I went to Monaco to do, and Damien Duff, which I went to Dublin to do, I've been edited out of the out of the program, and uh, they just had my questions off off mic, in fact, 
um, of the, you know, just using the television mic, the, the camera mic in the background. Um, and it, it, it stopped being an interview, it stopped being a conversation, it stopped being a, something in which two people were discussing this legend. And it just, I just, I didn't want it. It was an insult as I saw it, but it wasn't an insult. It was just them moving on. And, and, and you know, I've been there a long time and it was it was a liberation to be honest and and I uh I just felt um the time was right for everyone as as far as the pitch was concerned it had just become I'd stopped enjoying it I'd stopped enjoying it because there were just so many people who wanted to get involved and they and and you know at the beginning Roman had said to me when I I'd said to him once um I want to do this is that okay with you uh, when he was down the training ground? And he said, you're in charge of the bitch, just get on with it. And I was able to do things and I made decisions and, and that had been taken away from me massively. And I was very uncomfortable with some of the things that were going on. Every player who got to 300 games got a presentation. Every overseas player got to 200 games got a presentation. They stopped all that, that happened. Eden Hazard got to 300 games and 100 goals around the same time and didn't get a presentation for either. I mean, you know, did you want to keep the guy? Well, maybe for 100 million euros and no games for Real Madrid. Yeah, but maybe not. But, but you know, this guy was one of our greatest players ever. And I didn't think... It, it, to me, it was all about understanding those, uh, those significant moments. And... and um, when we signed Nando uh, in 2011, January 2011, our first game, was, or his debut, was at home to Liverpool. That's right, And they yes. were really, really concerned about crowd trouble and everything else. And uh, I was being phoned and emailed and God knows what all week being asked what I was going to say on the pitch. And the thing is, I really, I, I'd have an idea of what I wanted to talk about. I didn't plan what I was going to say. It, it was it was not off the cuff, but it was it was intuitive. And 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 uh, of course, I thought about what I was going to say. Uh, but but uh, it's it's like a stand-up comedian. You get out there and you do what you do, uh, depending on on your audience. And I keep saying the only job is to hit the back row and to get the fans going. That that was all it was. So uh, about. 15, I'd said, I said, I actually had to write out what I was going to say. Um, and uh, about 15 minutes before I went on, I got a text uh, from, I can't remember who now. Uh, and uh, it was relating to what had happened the previous night. And the previous night was uh, Newcastle 4, Arsenal 4. I don't know if you remember that game when Arsenal went 4 0 up and Newcastle came back. And I looked at this and I just thought, brilliant. So I called the people running the big screen and I said, I've been told to give out um, an announcement. I need an extra 30 seconds because everything was timed now. I need an extra 30 seconds. And the guy on the big screen said, what's it for? And I said, never you mind. I've just been told to give it out. And he went, all right. And he gave me the extra 30 seconds. So I went out there. And I said, I have a very important announcement to make. And the ground went quiet, because they do when you've got a microphone when you say that. And I said, uh, 
This is a police message. A man went missing in the city of Newcastle last night by the name of Arsene Wenger. And there was a massive cheer from both sets of fans. Uh, and I said, if anyone knows of his whereabouts, they've set up a hotline. The number is 0800 0414242434. And everyone went crazy. There was loads of singing and everything. For me, that was my job. Everyone was singing. Everyone was on the same, everyone was on the same uh, song sheet as well. And then I did the teams and the Torres boom. But actually, there was quite an air of bonhomie. Five minutes into the game, I get a phone call. Now, that in itself is, is evil. You do not phone me during a game. I'm watching the game. Mm. Well, I get a phone call. And I was asked, why did you say that? I said, say what? Why did you tell that joke? I said, because it was funny. I said, what was the point? It could have caused a riot. I said, caused a riot. It brought unity. Yeah. Everyone was everyone was enjoying it. it. Brought unity, and this person said, "You were told to play this with a straight bat." I said, "I did. I just didn't play a forward defensive. I stroked it through the covers for thought." Times had changed, and that was 2011, and and it, it still went on till 2018. Times had changed, and and I went out. One game, uh, I don't remember what it was, but it was a League Cup tie. Uh, and I said, uh, when you look at uh, this game on social, on media, general media, and see that it's not a full house, I'd just like to point out that Chelsea have sold all our tickets. Welcome to whoever it was. I can't remember who it was. Uh, just a shame you couldn't sell yours. And I was actually congratulated after that by the, by the communications department for bringing it to light. One did the same thing for Fulham about three years later and was perhaps a little bit more harsh because it was Fulham down the road. I got absolutely uh, hammered for doing it. So, so there was inconsistency. But, hey, you know, it's a big club. It's got big departments. It's, it's, it's how it is. And we've just won the Champions League again. So I'm not complaining. Final question on it. If the chance ever came up and there was an opportunity for you to return to Chelsea, would you consider it? As owner? Anything you want. <laughs> uh, I'm a power freak. I've got to be in charge. Um, right. Would I like to sit on the board as one of these new board representatives? Absolutely no way, because you've got no power. So what's mm. the point? You're just a listener. No, no, that doesn't interest me. Um, I Time moves on. Uh, I had a great time. Let me say this. I, I've got a huge ego, because obviously I couldn't have done what I, I, I've done with, without it. Uh, and, and I love it. I, I loved it all. And, and I love looking back on it, but I'm a guy who looks forward. And one of the best things that has happened to me in the last few years is going back in the crowd. I just love being at away games and being back in the crowd. It's everything that I fell in love with in 1959, and it's still as brilliant. And if the UEFA just keep their bloody corrupt hands off the details of our game, and if idiots stop trying to form Super Leagues... Uh, and 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 just understand the genius of this game and how it goes from the streets, the back streets, to to 
the Alliance Arena in Munich, uh, then people will people will enjoy it for for generations to come, and that's what I love. That is what I love, and I've you know I'm I'm a I'm a bit of, I'm still a bit of a geek. Uh, I still keep records and stats. I now go uh, every away game. I've got a farm shop near every away game, and I buy all my food organically and bring it home. So I need these away trips in order to eat well. That's why I still look so young at my age. And and uh, it's um, it that's what I am. I'm I'm pretty comfortable where I am. Uh, but um, uh, I, I you know uh, I just want to say about Lee Parker who took over the pitch. Uh, from that's the, right yes yeah he's an absolute gentleman Lee uh, and he called me uh, and he kind of asked my permission really uh, uh, he made sure I didn't feel bad about it when when he was asked to do it and uh, he's an absolute gentleman supporting because he got a lot of backlash when the news was sort of found out that you obviously left and he was going to be taking over not a massive amount of he, fans, he, but there was a small cluster of people that was sort of complaining about the fact that... He's know, not Biden... doing the same thing. I think he's following a pretty tight script. And, uh... Yes. Uh, yeah. I, well, but... I was there last home game against Leicester. He was obviously the, the, you know, the man in charge. And as you say, he's been pretty much told what to say rather than yeah, being spontaneous. I, I... And... It, it's, just, it's just where company life is. Mm-hmm. in in the 21st century that's how it is um you know it uh, there is a reason that uh people are so disenfranchised from politics in this country and in america uh um and you know i've got a great relationship with the united states now because i've got a radio program over there um and and it is that that politicians lie and are led into line by communications departments. And mm. it's just how it is. That's that's not Chelsea. That is that is business line. Just a couple of more questions before I do eventually let you go, Neil. Um something that I haven't done yet, so you are the first person that I'm gonna do this to, is her word association. So I'm gonna say a few names and I would like you to provide your opinion on each one. Would that be okay? Yep. Perfect. First one. Glenn Hoddle. Uh, genius who uh, brought our club into the 1990s and made us play football again and attracted top-class players again. Mason Mount. Um, oh, I've got really strong opinions on Mason. First time playing when he was 15, he is... Uh, an out-and-out brilliant, potentially world-class number eight, midfielder, number eight. Uh, His pass for the winning goal in the Champions League final was a number eight pass, not a number 10. He was deep, he looked up, he saw a gap, and he played in the moving player. Uh, that That was a pass worthy of winning the Champions League. I don't think he's ever been a number 10. Having said that, in the last season, I think he's added a yard to his game. I think he's a little bit, he's got, he can now, he can now move past someone in a way he couldn't before. Uh, He can't really get away, but he can, he's added a yard to his game, which has made him a better player again. And he's added a trick to his game. Well, not one trick. He's added a number of tricks to a game so that he can beat a player and get away. 
So he's more of a number 10 now than he ever has been before. So maybe the coaches were right and I was wrong. But for me, put him in the midfield because he's the best bloody midfielder in the Premier League after Kevin De Bruyne. Why did we ever sell him? I think we can talk for hours about how we got rid of Kevin De Bruyne and even Lukaku as well. Mohamed Salah. (laughs) Dennis Wise. (laughs) The rat. Um... (laughs) Uh, When I started Wimbledon Concord, the first person I interviewed was this kid I'd never heard of who didn't go off on pre-season with the rest of the club because he'd broken his arm or his ankle or something. And I sat down on the step at Plough Lane and interviewed an 18-year-old Dennis Wise. Um, uh, uh, one of the most underestimated technicians in Chelsea's history. He could pass a ball with both feet. He could pass quickly. He could pass long and measured. Uh, he was an outstanding midfielder. And everybody remembers Gianfranco's sensational goal in Stockholm, but they need to remember Dennis's pass to him. It was a first-time clipped uh, half volley, an absolutely wonderful pass. Uh, he, was, he was a truly outstanding midfielder. Uh, he, I don't think he was a born captain. I think he had to learn captaincy, a bit like uh, Cesar Apelicueta. Um, but he became one of our greatest captains, a marvellous personality who improved with every new big signing and one of the dirtiest bastards he's ever played for Chelsea. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty much sums him up. Frank Lampard. Um, Lamps always has a go at me because I always said to him, I said it to his face, that in his first season, he really reminded me of John Bumstead. Now, that's not a criticism. John Bumstead played 409 games for us, was it? Something like that. Um, But John Bumstead was um, a terrific servant who very rarely gave the ball away, but didn't always necessarily do an awful lot with it. And, And... I always thought that Frank at West Ham was a better player than Jamie Redknapp at Liverpool because he'd have more product to his game. He scored more goals, made more goals. Um, Redknapp was a good player, obviously. I'm not putting him down, but but Frank. And, and in that first season, it was just it was a big move for him. It was it, it was a massive move for him, and he just added something every game, every year, every year, right up to the end of his career. He added something. He was the most brilliant self-teaching player ever. But it wasn't just self-teaching. He'd get coaches out to help him, and he'd get people out to help him. And he became the best midfielder in the world, without any shadow of doubt, for a long, long time. What I would say about the people who said the whole issue, which I, I kind of think, slightly shadowed his England career that he couldn't play with Gerrard. Of course he could bloody play with Gerrard. That's why Chelsea wanted to sign Gerrard. What they meant was he couldn't play 4-4-2 with Gerrard with the two of them in central midfield. And we had this problem that early on in their career together for England, Wayne Rooney came along and he could only play in two up. He couldn't play one up 
until late in his career because he, he simply wasn't uh, that kind of a player. Mm. So all of a sudden, you couldn't play 4-3-3 and shove a Makaleli uh, or a Xabi Alonso between uh, Gerard and Lampard. You had to play uh, some other some other shape and all the managers kept the 4-4-2 and it didn't work. Mm. Uh, but to be fair, Gerard very rarely played central midfield in 4-4-2 at Liverpool. Uh, he was either pushed to the right wing or in the end they went 4-2-3-1 and played him number 10. Lampard was somebody who scored more goals than Gerard, who got more assists than Gerard, and who basically was a better player than Steven Gerrard. Steven Gerrard was a Hollywood player who carried Liverpool on his back, and he had so many great moments that you call him a great player. Frank Lampard was constantly great, but had the great moments as well. Ben Andrews. <laughs> Chelsea TV, Ben Andrews. That's it, yes. Um, better than most commentators on television at the moment. I'll second that. Uh, and by the way, by the way, uh, I, I, do, I want to take that a bit further, actually. Okay. Uh, as we talk, Martin Tyler is 75 years old. Um, wow, I did not know that. Ian, 75 years old and has spent the pandemic driving to away games on his own because he can't, because of uh, social distancing uh, in the north. He, he lives uh, he lives near the training ground in Cobham, well, near Cobham, uh, and driving back through the night uh, in order to be ready for the next game. Uh, Ian Dark, who, who is uh, the sort of number two commentator on BT, but easily the best commentator on BT, He's about 68 now, 69. Uh, Clive Tilsley, who, as we've all found out during the Euros, is the best ITV commentator. He's about um, 65, something like that. What's going on with commentary? Um, and the young ones who come up don't seem to be always the best. Um, mm. Ben should be doing more. Don't get me started on Jermaine Genus. Um... Oh, please. <laughs> I think you can. I'm with you. <laughs> No, don't, because we'll be here for another five hours. But, 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 <laughs> but if you want to go on about Jermaine Genus, we might as well go on about Steve McManaman. Oh, oh, I'd rather not. No, definitely not. Um, Jose Mourinho. Changed our club. Best manager we've had by a distance first time round. Um, changed football. Changed football. He was the manager more than anyone who made analysing the opposition, exploiting weaknesses, negating strengths, an essential part of all management. He was the one who dragged management into a seven-day-a-week, 24-hours-a-day job. Uh, and therefore, in many ways, he's as responsible for anyone in ensuring that managers no longer have much of a say in recruiting players because it, the job's just become so massive. But, but it changed football. It didn't change football on the pitch. It changed, which, which Pep Guardiola's done, it changed football off the pitch. Uh, and not many managers can claim to having done that. Uh, I, I, think that uh, I think that his coaching, which was just so entertaining for the players, all the players first time round just loved his coaching sessions. So innovative. But I don't think his coaching ever had an attacking plan. 
right. uh, in the way that Peps have an, has, has an attacking plan and uh, and Klops has an attacking plan um, and and uh, and Conte's has an attacking plan and and maybe that's where he struggled in recent years. Um, uh, but you do need the players, as he keeps telling us. And even Thomas Tuchel can't get a goal out of Stone. Yeah. Ken Bates. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, some people stab you in the face. Some people shake your hand and pay for Stone to stab you in the back. What's the difference? <laughs> um, he, uh, he lived our football club. He lived it. He wanted the best for it. Uh, he fought for the best for it. Uh, and he did it his way. And if it wasn't always palatable, uh, it was always um, for the club. Uh, and he should be remembered as a chairman who took over uh, when we were down the bottom of the old second division and left us in the Champions League with a few trophies in the cabinet as well. And he also brought a period of sexy football in the late 90s that was possibly as attractive as any period in our history. He should Ron be remembered Harris. for the football. Yes, I agree with that. Ron Harris. Um, <laughs> he made Dennis Wise look clean. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he, 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 uh, I, I mean, Chop, Chopper tells a great line uh, when he does his after dinner speaking. And he says, people ask me uh, if, uh, if now when you can't tackle, if, uh, if you could, uh, if I would survive in today's football. And I say, I probably wouldn't even make the end of the warm up. Um, he, 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 he was, uh, he was a winner. Uh, but he, he he was he was hard. He was really really hard. Uh, I kind of think that he's mellowed in his older years. Um, uh, when I did finish with Chelsea, he was one of the first people to phone me up uh, and and tell me how sorry he was and everything. Ron Harris has just been a great servant to our football club. He didn't always do it prettily. He can get <laughs> very. Um, opinionated at times uh he is uh somebody who i will always agree with because however much older than he is than me which is only a few years i would always lose <laughs> uh we are the better for him absolutely jen franco zola um he didn't change chelsea but he transformed us and and was just one of our greatest ever players. Um, and and but he transformed attitude. You know, one of the things that Rude Hullet introduced as manager, which really pissed off a lot of people, uh, was he had pre-training technical work for people who weren't good enough, and that was a lot of the young players who come through the ranks who weren't good enough, and they kind of objected. To they felt picked upon. They had to come in half an hour early and do this uh, technical work. Uh, as soon as they started doing that, Franco turned up voluntarily and did it with them, and that changed their minds pretty damn quickly. And then, in fact, so did Dan Petrescu. Um, 
and and the two of the greatest technicians this club has ever had. Uh, um, it was it was just brilliant. Franco was just. I I think there is a line. I think there is a DNA line, a Chelsea DNA line that goes Charlie Cook, Pat Nevin, Gianfranco Zola, maybe a little bit Ian Robin, and Eden Hazard. And, and just those guys that, that elevated the game to something, uh, something technically beyond what anybody else could do. And, and Franco, I mean, two feet, two feet. Did anybody really know whether he was right-footed or left-footed when it came? I mean, it, it didn't matter to him, did it? Uh, I mean, just uh, and just uh, he, he, he wasn't messy, but he wasn't far off. Final one, John Terry. The best captain we've had. The best defender we've had. Arguably the best player we've had. Uh, the best winner we've had. Um, not always his own best friend, uh, which has maybe coloured how some people have seen his career. Um, but for me, a good friend, and for a lot of people, a good friend. And just... I went I went down the training ground one day. I was, I was trying to get... Um, I was trying to get an interview with Michael Ballard. Uh, I can't remember what... For, what it had been for TV, I think. And... Um, and uh, this would have been... Um, this would have been April 2008. So it was a time when I wasn't free to go down the training round and do what I wanted. And I had to, uh, I would already been restricted and I, would, I, would, I had to set up in advance. And I got down there and I found Michael and I said, uh, are we okay to do this? And he said, no, I can't. Sorry, I've got to go. I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, uh, we're all going to Frank's mum's funeral. John Terry's told us we all have to go. Michael Ballack said, John Terry's told us we all have to go. That tells you hmm. the, not the power, but the presence that John Terry had in our club. And let us not forget that the last time we won the league was 2017. And he may not have been playing, but he was still in the dressing room. And Antonio Conte said he didn't want to lose him. He wanted him to stay because of his presence in the dressing room. In the end, however good a player he was, we missed him most as John Terry, the captain. Thank you for going through the descriptions of those players and, you know, fantastic sort of to listen about John Terry. And as you, as you say, he's been... Labelled as Marmite, some people like him, some people hate him. But I, again, I think many Chelsea fans, no matter what, will still see him as captain, leader, legend. Absolutely. Can I just say about Wisey that I didn't say? It was him who introduced the uh, singing for uh, new signings. And, uh, I've, I've heard about brains. this, yes. It was him who introduced it. And uh, it was, uh, yeah... Uh, it's something that's carried on and gone to other clubs. I'm sure I don't, I'd never heard of it in any other club when he introduced it. And, uh, 
I was present when uh, Gianfranco, Luca and Robbie did a, a three tenors and I can tell you it was bloody awful. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were better on the pitch than with a microphone. Um, Neil, we want to talk about current events just quickly if we can. Um, something that a lot of people are um, in and are and about, some of them have find it very, very tough to watch is VAR. And I know, you know, you've sort of mentioned it on a few sort of podcast episodes in, in the past about VAR. Just sort of quickly, what's your overall opinion of, of VAR? VAR is brilliant. The people who run it shouldn't be allowed near football. Um, obviously as the pitch host, I got to know referees. Um, I have very strong views about referees. Um, I don't think they're normal. Right. Um, how do you become a well? How do you become a referee? Um, you become a referee by joining a referee association and going down to your local park and refereeing games as a teenager. What makes somebody want to do that? What makes somebody not want to play the beautiful game? Put put on a different kit, run around, blow your whistle, and order people around. Those people. The best of them become the full-time referees years down the line. Who chooses them? Well, the referee societies choose them. And who runs the referee societies? Ex-referees. It, it's, it's the most insular, in-house, uh, separate organisation from the rest of football imaginable. Now, if you take it up to the highest level, at FIFA, EFAB, um, which is the board that decides on the rules of the game, uh, is chaired by David Ellery, who completely mismanaged our 1994 FA Cup final as a referee uh, when we lost 4-0 to Manchester United. Now, David Ellery um, is someone who's overseen the change in the offside law, the change in the handball laws, all these things that are completely irrational uh, about our game. Um, and a lot of the referees that, that I've come across have been arrogant, have been uh, um, short-tempered. Um, and, and I just, I go back to when referees were made professional. And my question at the time was, yeah, I understand that you make them professional so they can be full-time and they can concentrate on improving. But why is nobody asking what makes a good referee? Why has there never been any research into what kind of person we want to be a referee? Not by ex-referees, but by other people. Um, I've heard some brilliant suggestions as to how officiating the game can be improved. And every time they're shouted down. One of the most stupid things I'll give you was when FIFA allowed the Premier League to run a, an experiment uh, bringing the rugby rule, where if you don't withdraw to 10 yards, a free kick is moved forward 10 yards. And if you remember, that was experimented with for one season and in the Premier League and then rejected by FIFA. But what FIFA did, which rugby didn't do, because they're just a bunch of stewards, was they booked the player who hadn't withdrawn 10 yards. So you stopped the game. 
rather than making it quicker, rather than benefiting the team who have been uh, who, who, who have been breached by the standing in front of the ball or not withdrawing, moving it forward 10 yards and taking the, the, the free kick 10 yards further forward. No, everything has to stop so that this wally of a ref can wave a yellow card at someone and take his number. I mean, it just slowed it down. It was an absolute disaster. Um, and and so, someone came up with a brilliant suggestion uh, that a referee shouldn't have to send someone off for two yellow cards. He can do if it's two tackles from behind. But he doesn't have to if it's kicking the ball away twice. And you can get up to five yellow cards, a suspension in a game before the referee sends you off. And it's down to the referee's uh, uh, understanding of the game and integrity as to whether or not he sends him off. Because a game should be 11 versus 11. And I put this to an ex-referee once. She said, oh, no, we've got enough responsibility on our hands without having to deal with that. Because you don't love the bloody game. All you're in love with is refereeing. And so we finally get to VAR, and they've made the game about themselves. They have made the game about themselves. Offside, or this was a Ken Batesian thing, by the way. Ken was right about this decades ago. The offside law was introduced to stop forwards getting an unfair advantage. It was to stop goal hanging. It was to make the game entertaining. It was to make it fluid. It wasn't about a steward getting the thread out and deciding whether or not somebody's toenail, or as it turns out, elbow, uh, is in advance of uh, the last defender. It's not what the game is about. Uh, and why doesn't the attacker get the benefit of the doubt anymore? Why can't we just have daylight between the attacker and the defender? And the European Championships, if it's shown anything, has shown that other countries deal with VAR much better than uh, England does. And England has a real issue with it. And we have a real issue with our referees. And I know it's, it's, it was always the thing to say that Howard Webb was a Manchester United supporter. Howard Webb was one of the few referees who was a normal bloke and who was a bloody good referee. And that's why he refereed the Champions League final <coughs> and a World Cup final, which went a bit wrong. But, but he wanted to keep 11 versus 11 on the pitch. And I thought he was thoroughly dignified in the way that he, he refereed that game. And, and since then, some of the refereeing, I just, and some of the decisions and the way they're made is not for the benefit of the game. I have a terrible admission to make, and I apologise to everyone who doesn't like Arsenal. Um, uh, I'm not particularly fond of them, but I don't hate them because I don't hate anyone in football because I can't stand all this hatred, social media and everything else. Well, I hate Leeds, but that, I'm from the 1960s, so it's different. But, but I think that Arsene Wenger, who has just joined EFAB, the committee, in the last six months, I think they should wipe everybody off EFAB and let Arsene Wenger dictate the game for the next two or three years. <coughs> Excuse me. Change the rules as he wants to, because he's a football man. He's not a bloody referee. So <coughs> for VAR now, what I would do, I would have three people making the decision on VAR. Yes, an ex-referee for the rules, an ex-player for the understanding of the game, and someone with an IQ in advance of 10 to compensate for the other two. Okay. Interesting. I'm, we shall move on. 
Neil, your thoughts on present day Chelsea? Now, as you said, you know, before the pandemic, you was going to games, you was enjoying the atmosphere. Yeah, last season, Chelsea had one of the another bonkers season, which ended up winning the European Cup. But as a as a fan and as somebody who has been, I'm still sitting in the press box. Part of the furniture. Yeah, yeah. What's um, your thoughts? Uh, my on feelings Chelsea? on Chelsea are that we've got a wonderfully deep squad, but we haven't got a balanced starting eleven. And uh, under Frank Lampard, we were scoring lots of goals and conceding lots of goals. And under Thomas Tuchel, we weren't conceding any goals, but we were scoring very few goals either. We deserved to win the Champions League. We only conceded two goals in the knockout rounds. We were dead lucky to come in the top four in the Premier League. We were the eighth top scorers in the Premier League. Uh, We need to have a balanced squad. And, And I do feel still at Chelsea that a lot of the recruitment is a bit like playing FIFA. Uh, I mean, it's it's just it, it doesn't seem balanced. Um, I I uh, <laughs> I went in Conte's second season, uh, and people may forget that the only two years we haven't qualified for the Champions League under Roman. One was um, the Jose Gus Hiddink season, but the other one was Antonio Conte's second season. Yeah, um, and and uh, we. Over Christmas, New Year, uh, he'd obviously grown impatient with the squad, Antonio, and he didn't like uh, uh, certain... We didn't trust certain people. And Eden and Cesc were playing every single game. And we got to the middle of January, and we played a home game with Leicester, and we drew it nil all, and it was quite a damaging result. Uh, And after about an hour, he took uh, Eden and Cesc off, because they were just clearly exhausted and I think he put on Willie and, and, uh, and Pedro and that night I went out to dinner with a number of people one of whom was um, uh, Fabio Baldini who in fact I sat next to now Baldini if you remember was Capello's assistant for England and was the director of football at Tottenham when they sold Gareth Bale and bought all those players in uh, when, when Vias Boas was the manager of Tottenham and he said to me, I watched your game this afternoon. I said, yeah, oh, were you there? He said, no, I watched it in my hotel room. I said, but it wasn't on television, so you must have watched it illegally. But that's the as it may. But, um, but uh, he, um, he said, do you know where the game went wrong for you? And I said, tell me. Now, this is a football man talking, and I just think this is brilliant, what he said. He said... Uh, if you'd have had Diego Costa still at centre forward, it would have been fine. Because all your players, your creative players, want to turn inside and thread the ball through. And all he wants to do is run onto the ball and smash it in the net. But you had Alvaro Morata playing. Yeah. Because obviously Diego there. And he said, and therefore, you need somebody to turn outside, go around the back and cross the ball. And if you cross the ball three, six, nine times, he'll score you one, two, three goals. But if you keep threading it through to him, he won't. And that is the difference between recruiting by statistics and understanding football. I don't believe Antonio Conte wanted Alvaro Morata for one second. People say, but he signed him for Juventus. No, he didn't. He was signed for Juventus, and that was the summer he walked out. He never managed him for one game. 
No, because he walked out, I oh, believe they... it was the first day of pre-season, I think. He no, left. it was two weeks before the season began. Oh, and, uh, they've got Max, they got Maxi Allegri in then. And, uh, and uh, Alvaro and uh, Juventus got to the Champions League final. Now, Alvaro's got to two Champions League finals. He's not a mug. Um, uh, with two different teams, with Juventus and with Real Madrid. He's, he's not a mug. But he is a very particular kind of player who needs a very particular kind of service. And he wasn't suited. Now, uh, Conte wanted Lukaku with us. Yes. And of course, if you thread the ball through to Lukaku and he's running through on goal, he is, he's not that different from Diego Costa in his style of play. Uh, and that's why he wanted him to see, you know. It, it, so I, 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 I feel very strongly that we're still recruiting by stats and, and not enough by BI. Interesting insight, and I, I personally believe I think there's going to be a lot of people that will agree with you on that. Neil, final question in what has, for me, been such a fantastic insight of listening to Chelsea stories over the years. How do you look back on your time at Chelsea? I look back on it more than anything as a supporter. <laughs> when, I, when I was, all the years I was working there, uh, no one probably worked with me apart from people who were really close to me uh, in terms of producing the programme or, or uh, that really um, will believe this. Easily the most important part of the job to me was simply watching the game for 90 minutes. Easily the most important. I, I'm addicted. I'm totally addicted. I, I don't believe that football is a marriage. I don't believe that it's a love affair. I don't believe that it's family. I don't believe any of that crap. It's the best addiction in the world. Uh, false highs, false lows that are really hard to get in the same way in any other part of life. How do I look upon it? The best bloody addiction I've ever had. And you're not the only one to have the addiction because we all can't wait to return to Stamford Bridge for the new season, most definitely. Neil, before I do eventually let you go, obviously you've got an Instagram account that you've been showing off your cooking skills. Um, you know, it's, it's received a sort of quite a lot of good feedback at the moment. So it'll be interesting what you uh, conjure up for us for the semi-finals and indeed the final itself. Yeah, no, I, I uh, yeah, I've always done all the cooking at home. I love cooking. It's it's uh, one of the few activities that clears my head, um, and and, uh, and and I love ethnic cooking. I, I, I really like traditional cooking from around the globe, and and and, uh, and uh, um, you know, I work a lot with Americans at the moment who think who think that if it's not Italian and it's not steak, then it's not food. And um, I was I was at an event in uh, Las Vegas uh, last uh, just before lockdown. Uh, Christian Pulisic said in an interview I did with him for for American radio. He said, uh, uh, "I said, have you adapted to English food?" And he said, oh, "I just try and eat American uh, whenever I can." And there was a debate on my radio show over there as to what exactly American food is. Uh, and in the end, it kind of the biggest vote really was sort of southern Texan almost with southern fried chicken and, and all that stuff um, but I was at an event uh, some years ago in Las Vegas with Chelsea fans in fact uh, um, 
in which the subject came up uh, of what exactly American food was, uh, which is something that I told Christian actually off, off the interview. Uh, and the answer was, uh, it's take whatever recipe you like, double it, but quadruple the meat. And, um, <laughs> so I won't be doing that. I won't be doing that. <laughs> I'm glad USA aren't in this tournament. <laughs> Neil, it's been an absolute pleasure. And in fact, it's, it has been an honour to have you on the podcast today. I've absolutely appreciated your time. And again, as I said, hopefully we'll see you down at the bridge again once fans are properly allowed back in. So just want to say thank you very much for your time, Neil, and all the best. Keep the faith. Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network.